Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Jeffrey Roche, Senior Vice President of Workforce Development at Dignity Health Global Education. His professional career has included over nine years in hospital administration, where he served as a strategic advisor to the president and CEO and department director of various departments, including business development and planning, government affairs, community health, and public relations for a regional healthcare system in Northeast Pennsylvania. Jeffrey has also served in senior leadership roles at two academic institutions where he led strategic partnerships, organizational strategy, and business development for both Lebanon Valley College and Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. His passion for equity in healthcare and education drives him to find ways to overcome the current shortage of healthcare workers in our country. So we're very fortunate to have him here to gain some valuable insights. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to see you too, Rishi. So I'd love to have you dive in and tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to your interest in healthcare. Sure. So I always start out by saying in some ways, my quote unquote interest in healthcare was certainly started by my mother. Uh, my mother's a nurse. And so as a young child, I can recall her coming home from her time in the neonatal intensive care unit or maternity care unit and saying all about the work she was doing. But when I went to college, I never would have thought healthcare is where I ended up, frankly, uh, because I was a political science major, had done work in government actually throughout high school and in college. And it was actually my late academic advisor who said to me, hey, you know, your, your mother's a nurse, you know, you like to serve. I'd like to see if you would do a semester-long internship at a healthcare system. And that was really what led me to consider healthcare, really both from a policy perspective, um, but also from the perspective of could I help to move a community forward through serving in a healthcare environment? Did you feel like as you got into it, you, you had kind of a deeper appreciation for your mom's work. I imagine like as a kid, you kind of see one side of it, but as you get to know the whole system better, you're like, oh my gosh, she did more than I would have given her credit for growing up as a kid. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. So the answer is yes. That short answer is absolutely yes. But what's interesting about that, Rishi, is that I worked in the same hospital my mother worked at when I was a kid. Now it was very different. It was larger but, you know, I can recall from the very moment I started there, I would walk the halls of the clinical environments and people would say, oh, my gosh, that's Gabby's son. I remember him when he used to come in here when she was a nurse. Now, my mother was not working there when I worked there. She had left several years before that, but certainly gave me appreciation. And I'll tell you something, too. What it really gave me an appreciation for was how much my mom accomplished. And as I started to work really closely with our service lines and actually was fortunate to help build our service lines, it was clear to me, and not just my mom, but obviously I cared more about that because it was my mom, how integral she and her colleagues in nursing were to a lot of the things that we were actually working on even all those years later. And so that was really humbling and also certainly a reflection point that I said, wow, this is really amazing. Yeah, that is amazing, especially because you have that perspective, knowing her not just for a snapshot in time, but having the longitudinal view of her career uh, and knowing how instrumental she was uh, on the front lines. You know, I'm curious, you've had a new position, congratulations, started kind of recently in July as Senior VP of Workforce Development at Dignity Health Global Education. Do you mind just sharing a little bit more about Dignity Health and what distinguishes Dignity Health and your focus there in your new role? Sure. 
Dignity Health Global Education was founded just over two years ago. So it's really young. And, and obviously by the name, it's clear it was founded in many ways by Dignity Health, which as you know now is part of Common Spirit. But it was actually founded by Dignity Health and another organization that's actually based in Europe with the clear intention around, you know, when we look at healthcare from both an education, training, and workforce development perspective, there's a lot of great colleges and universities, both at a community college as well as at a four-year level that do everything from allied health to nursing to medical doctor degrees and, and a whole host of things. But oftentimes, you know, what we have found, and I saw this even in my healthcare career as an administrator, there are times where, you know, they're not providing necessarily the best practical skills when it comes to applying them in healthcare. And I think a lot of times that happens because while faculty are, are wonderful and they do their very best, they may not be still working in that field today. And so our role really is focused on developing healthcare programs for healthcare by healthcare. Uh, very similar really in, in many ways is the, the wonderful work that osmosis does within your mission. And so our mission has really been around everything from nursing, for example, Mercy College of Health Sciences is part of the Common Spirit Network. Dignity Health Global Education works with them really on the online learning platform, as well as making sure that from a nursing education perspective, that everything we do is reaching nurses in a way that they want to learn and in a way that they need to learn. And so it's innovative. And for example, we recently signed a national partnership with Mersion and uh, we're incorporating what Mersion does into a number of our programs. But we've also, uh, as you know, have developed a number of skills-based certificate programs with leading academic institutions such as Duke, Pepperdine, American University, and others. And so our role in many ways, as I always like to say, is everything is for healthcare by healthcare. But more importantly, we're also focused both at a clinical and an administrative end in making sure we prepare not just our current workforce, but our future workforce, and then more importantly, our future healthcare leaders. That's amazing. You know, I actually know Mersion and, and went through a product demo with Mersion. So I got to experience it. And they did this example where I had to ask a mom and a child about some struggles that the child was having in school. And going through that demo with them, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I really wish that as a clinician, when I had been trained up, I had this product, right, available. I would have been trained more effectively, more efficiently. It would have been more fun. And so I'm just curious, you know, what kind of feedback do you get from nurses when you say like you have a goal of kind of training them the way they want to be trained and you incorporate immersion? What, what do you hear from folks when they get these new products? So obviously we are just starting that process now of actually embedding immersion into it. And so I couldn't give you direct feedback yet. But to your exact point, having also sat through demos and, and you know, also just being an individual that has participated in, you know, setting up nursing programs before and helping do that with various VR, AR capabilities. You know, I think to your exact point is exactly spot on. Uh, what I have heard from all levels of clinicians and providers is that when you have an opportunity to use technology in a way that, you know, you can literally simulate anything, there's a certain level of difference there. And there's a certain level of being able to challenge one another, explore various different areas. You know, one area in particular that I think has been really helpful is in communication, um, which actually Immersion does, you know, pretty well in the work that they do. And when I did the demo, I had shared with them that in many ways, it reminded me of my crucial conversations training that I had to do as a healthcare administrator, because my scenario was dealing with team members and conflict resolution. And when I did the demo, 
uh, several months ago out in California, I immediately said, wow, I felt like I was back in the room with my healthcare team and talking about the challenges that we were facing as a team. And despite the fact that it was on a computer and we were communicating, the avatar was listening to me, I felt like it was my former colleague. And so it, it's still very real. And I think you know, so much is changing and so much is dynamic and it's such an important element, not just clinically, but I think even administratively. And as you know, in healthcare where transformation and innovation continues to occur, must occur more quickly in my opinion, but we've gotta be using these types of tools because frankly, we've gotta change the way we talk to people. Uh, we've gotta meet them in ways that meet their needs. Uh, and truly we have to become more culturally aware. You know, there's a huge shortage right now in healthcare workers, and, and you're on the front lines of this. I'm just curious, you have the partnership with Common Spirit Health uh, and launched the Equity Impact Scholarship to help solve some of the issues around bringing in folks that are economically disadvantaged into the workspace. Do you mind just talking a little bit more about that and what you've learned through that process of setting up that scholarship? Yeah, absolutely. That Equity Impact Scholarship was, you know, as, as you know, created by Common Spirit. So Common Spirit made a decision to create this equity impact scholarship of $3 million and uh, made a decision to partner with us on it. And it, it has the opportunity to fund everything from all of the certificate programs to our RN to BSN uh, with Mercy College of Health Sciences to uh, our master's programs, our two master's programs as well. And, you know, it's been really a powerful story um, as the scholarships and applications have been coming in you know, the stories, the personal statements that the students that are seeking the scholarships are sharing are clearly right in the mission of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is the exact purpose of the scholarship. And so while we're looking to certainly help with a workforce shortage in a number of areas in healthcare, we are also looking to bring more conversation and advancement of diversity, equity, and inclusion into healthcare as well. And so, you know, what I would tell you, Rishi, is that our scholarship committee has shared many, many of them with me after they've been awarded. And I have just been totally, not only encouraged, but further inspired that this is exactly what we all must continue to do. Because it, to your exact point, it is giving people an opportunity who never thought they would have an opportunity. And I'll give you an example. Some of the nursing colleagues who have applied for a scholarship, you know, the opportunity for a $10,000 RN to BSN degree fully online accredited and, and receive a scholarship of up to $7,500 to cover. And then the rest of that potentially could be covered by an employer and literally have zero out of pocket is pretty profound. And, you know, we have that in some other circumstances as well. And so the students are, are literally saying, is this true? Is this really true? And the answer is yes, if they apply and they're approved. Uh, and frankly, the rubric for approval is all based on that personal statement. And so Common Spirit truly tried to make this a no strings attached type of scholarship, which as you know, with usual financial aid, it's tough to do that. There's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. This effort is truly to knock down those silos and make it as easy as possible for the student. That's amazing. And, and from a student's perspective, uh, certainly as a student that once got a scholarship to go through school, I can tell you it's just, it's such a meaningful thing. It makes you feel like you're valued, makes you feel like you can do it. And a lot of folks, they have a financial burden, but then they also have you know, areas where maybe no one is really kind of giving them a vote of confidence. And so it's obviously, it's a huge morale boost to know that, that you believe in them enough to put your money behind them. You know, I'm curious, you're also a member of the National Health Equity Task Force. And so it seems like this is obviously a huge uh, part of your career and part of who you are as a human being. 
what are some things that the task force is examining uh, with regards to health equity? And what are some, I guess, gaps where people just don't even notice that there's a problem, but there is one and you've come to kind of appreciate it? So let me say, when I talk about health equity, I always give credit to my former president and CEO of my hospital system where I started my career because it was her and her name is Kathy. And I always tell her, I always say her name because she has had such a profound impact on my life, both personally and professionally. Kathy taught me that every leader needs to figure out where their mission is. And uh, in the community we served, we learned quickly of the challenges from a health equity standpoint. And she said, you've got to work hard to fix it. Um, and so I had the privilege of, of, you know, spending time with the homeless and spending time with various different populations and seeing what I could do to bring screenings and healthcare access to them in ways that was different. And so now having served for over a year on the National Health Equity Task Force, there's a couple of things that obviously have come out of it. Uh, for one, the health equity tracker, uh, which you may be aware of, is now accessible and available and continues to be further developed as time goes on, because as you know, data in public health, data in healthcare in general, still has its challenges and certainly its limitations. And so, you know, this is a conversation that is every day and must be. And I will say that, you know, in in the current climate that we're in, there's a lot more certainly being advanced with regard to health equity at the federal government level, uh, which is really a positive. However, beyond the health equity tracker, you know, I think we continue to see challenges state by state in certain states, particularly where they're not necessarily as willing and open to thinking about why this issue should be important. When you peel back the onion, as you know, in the work and leadership that you've been a part of, there's health equity in everything. You know, whether it's organ donation, whether it's clinical care, uh, whether it's access to care, whether it's the quality of the care, we can find health equity concerns. And I think everyone within healthcare needs to pay attention and be mindful of what they can do to fix that. But then more importantly, Rishi, that we've, you know, not just learned through this process on the National Health Equity Task Force, we've known it, but it's been further refined, has been if we don't realize the connection between the social determinants of health and the political determinants of health, we will never advance these causes forward. And we literally have to go community by community, state by state, and and as a country to do that. And we've got to look at laws. We have to look at regulations. We've got to look at all the things that we know healthcare is so regulated and make every change that truly embodies a culture of equity. And uh, it's tough work, but we've got to continue to trailblaze it. I'm curious, when you come across stakeholders that say, you know, this is uh, overstated, uh, maybe investments here don't really make sense, uh, they're not seeing much ROI near-term or long-term, what are some lines of reasoning that you use to help them come over to your side? What, what has been persuasive in your experience? Well, you know, I think the first thing is it's easy, I think, to right away say that, particularly for people who may be of privilege. Let's just be honest, we have to. And so, you know, me being a, a white person of privilege, you know, I haven't had equity concerns. And therefore, it's my role and responsibility to be there as an advocate to ensure everyone has what I have. Uh, I have health insurance. I have good health insurance. My family has good health insurance. Uh, I've always had access to care. I don't live in a community that was redlined. And I'm not, you know, of a population that was impacted by redlining. And so I always try to remind people, certainly of the history, because that's important. You know, in Pennsylvania, as an example, 
our state Department of Health and Department of Human Services recently did a project across the state where we looked at the communities that were redlined and the social determinants of health challenges that still exist. And we looked at the health equity impacts that are still in place today as a result of those actions, how many years ago now? So, you know, we have to be honest about that. And I think, Rishi, there are some people who we just cannot convince of these issues, but you gotta go to the data. And if they're not willing to hear the data, sometimes it is a matter of bringing in a clinician, a doctor or someone else to help them think about this differently. And then frankly, there are just some people who aren't willing to listen. And you know what? I just move on from them because the reality is, is we know it's true. Uh, we've just got to continue to advocate and educate. And for those who aren't willing to hear this, it's just like the issue of systemic racism uh, in healthcare and in, in the practice of medicine, where we know it, it also still exists. There are people who say it doesn't. And guess what? You know what? Good luck to them because it does. My former CEO, Rishi, used to say to me, Sometimes there are people who you'll never convince. And she would say, Jeffrey, just walk on past them and say, God bless you and move on to the next person because our role and our mission must always be focused clearly on what we're looking to advance. It's a really nice way of phrasing it. And obviously the way that you're saying it shows that you have a degree of compassion and, and love for even that person. And, and I think that probably will stick with them long after the immediate interaction is forgotten. They'll remember that, like, that guy was nice to me, that guy was kind to me. Maybe next time, you know, I'll give that guy a chance. And so that's really helpful and, and inspiring, frankly. You know, with the COVID crisis, I'm just curious, what, what has shifted for you? What sort of things have you noticed, maybe even more broadly in the healthcare system, in terms of things that we absolutely need to fix? And maybe before it was kind of a, a nice to have, but now it's a need to have in terms of strengthening our, our healthcare system. So, you know, I think there's a lot as you know, and, and uh, as I was receiving my booster shot this morning, uh, obviously listening very carefully to the nurses, you know, the nursing workforce challenge alone, you know, it's something that was there actually before COVID, as we know, and then COVID just has made it worse. And then obviously the challenges with public health and, and the fact of vaccinations and, and the decisions and, and, and look, I get it. I mean, uh, I get asked all the time, should a hospital mandate vaccination? And, you know, I always say to people, if you're a caregiver uh, and you're a provider and you don't want to make a decision that ultimately could save a person, then I'm not sure at some point where the Hippocratic Oath or the work of Florence Nightingale or just the general aspect of care is missing with you. Um, because that's what I was raised in my career in healthcare was we're there to serve and we're there to care for one another. But you know, I think what has saddened me during COVID is that healthcare has been further politicized. And science, obviously we know, has really been politicized, but so has healthcare. I think in many ways it's created an us versus them. And I'm not sure exactly how we'll fix that, but we've got to work to do it. And you know, I have ideas and, and I think a lot of it comes that we've got to embrace generational differences in healthcare. Um, that's not something that I think a lot of organizations do really well because if we don't think about various different generations and particularly think about the generational challenges that healthcare is facing. So yeah, we know the nursing crisis is here. We know the doctor crisis in many ways is also prevalent in many specialties. We also know that we have administrators that are getting older and getting ready to retire. And we haven't done succession planning. We haven't planned for those massive retirements across the board. And yet at the same time, we haven't always embraced our young 
entrepreneurial emerging leaders who do want to serve, but sometimes that culture, that environment doesn't allow them to stick around and do it. And so we've got to really look in and hone in on these challenges. And I think also we have to get back to the core of service. You know, people choose to serve in healthcare to help one another. And so, you know, I think we've got to somehow get back to that. I think COVID has certainly been tough, tiring on everyone, uh, trying, tragic. But at the same time, I hope people will walk away remembering what we're there first to do, which is to help and serve others and, you know, take away this challenging time and, and certainly the politicization. That bothers me a lot as the politicization. I see it, you know, in every healthcare environment that I walk in, there's someone that has an opinion on this and, and opinions are okay, but ultimately not when they're done in a way to harm another person. Yeah. Do you feel like that has gotten in the way of getting things done uh, at Dignity Health Global Education, either internally or externally working with stakeholders and partners? Has that political environment caused things to move slower or not move at all as a result sometimes? So, you know, I don't think it necessarily has gotten in the way. I mean, obviously our work is very much focused on helping and very much focused in a lot of ways of solution-oriented elements that could help them. And so it hasn't necessarily gotten in the way. I think what it has done is said, oh my gosh, we've got to continue to move quicker. We've got to you know, be able and willing at all times to prepare what we all need, which is more supply uh, into our healthcare. And that means more partnerships. That means more potential academic partners. That means thinking entirely outside the box. Um, and I'll give you an example. I mean, and we all know this, we've talked about it for so long and yet in healthcare, sometimes it moves slow. We've gotta be in the schools, probably even around middle school or before, talking about why, why a student should think about healthcare as a career and building the pipeline career pathways for individuals to know what it's like to serve and work in healthcare earlier. College is not the time to focus on it they probably have made some level of a decision or they're going to. And frankly, we've got to reach them earlier. That's really what I would say, not necessarily has changed, but it's reminded us how important it is to look at the pathways and the pipelines of healthcare. That makes a lot of sense. I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, there are so many folks out there that have myths, misunderstandings, et cetera, that you've probably come across. You're like, oh my gosh, is this still a thing? Why are people believing this? And of course, in parallel to that, we're a teaching company. So with that in mind, that framing in mind, I'd love for you to help fill in a knowledge gap, something that you've seen in your tenure and various positions you've held on any topic where you'd like to educate our audience and say like, hey, you ought to know about this thing. What would that thing be? What would you teach us about? You know, I would say, particularly what comes to mind for me is in healthcare, we've got to continue to think deeply about upskilling and reskilling. We hear this in other sectors. We haven't done it well in a lot of cases in healthcare. That includes looking at entry level to mid-level to you know, various levels. We've got to really embed in our culture of healthcare that there are opportunities because as you know, sometimes at entry level roles, we lose those professionals quickly to retail or a whole host of places. And it all comes down to the fact that we haven't shared with them what their future could look like. Um, you may start here, but guess what? You could end up here. We haven't 
highlighted the fact that there are CEOs and CMOs and CNOs and so many other leaders at organizations that literally started in very similar entry-level roles. And I think that's important. One of my former bosses started in the food service department and worked his way up to be a senior vice president of over 40 years in a healthcare career. That's unheard of in many ways these days. And in many ways, we've got to get back to that. And it will help if we're more clear on reskilling and upskilling and how devoted we are to helping a person advance in their career. You know, a final question then for you is really just advice. You know, that a lot of students, early career health professionals that may be interested in, in pursuing something in education or in medicine or nursing, what's your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this particular moment and also getting ready for the next new big thing that's going to come our way? So my advice is that everyone needs a mentor and uh, beyond a mentor, everyone should consider a personal board of advisors. Consider having, you know, a group of people who you can bounce ideas off both personally and professionally, who can help you navigate a tough life, but also a challenging sector. But at the same time, it is without question, a sector that allows you to, in the most noble manner, serve. And I think having a mentor and a personal board of advisors will help you navigate in a way that will allow you to fulfill that service. Well, that's, I think, a fantastic way to end. And certainly mentors are sort of the, the giants upon which uh, shoulders we sit or, or stand on. And, and it sounds like you've had a number of amazing mentors in your life, uh, including ones in your own family. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, and thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do as well. That's very kind. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.